I got back from Israel last Friday. It was not my first time there. I've been a number of times now. But this trip was really different. We have discussed the pogrom, the Hamas Holocaust of October 7th, many times on this show. I certainly knew as soon as that happened that I had had to get over there. And I was there for about a week this time, Friday to Friday. There were a couple of groups that were co-sponsoring this small delegation of primarily younger conservatives from America that I was on. And I thought what I would do for you guys is to just go through my trip. You know, we'll fast forward some of the less exciting details. And then we'll, towards the end, just talk about some of the key takeaways as pertains to this multi-front conflict. And yes, it is a multi-front conflict with Hamas in Gaza, with Hezbollah up north, and with all sorts of assorted terrorist groups in Judea and Samaria, a.k.a. the West Bank as well. So I arrived there two Fridays ago, and the flight was delayed. We actually got to Jerusalem very close to Shabbat time, like less than an hour before Shabbat started. For those of you who are not familiar with the rules of, of the Jewish Sabbath, you basically go dark for 25 hours or so. So got there to the old city of Jerusalem for a beautiful, beautiful Shabbat, incredibly magical to be there. Anyone who has not been to Israel, if, if you are a Jew, if you are a Christian, if you are someone of faith, you really have to go. You got to go experience it. You, you have to see the Kotel what the Jews call it, the Western Wall, what most of the Western world refers to it as, that of course being the the literal Western Wall of the Beit HaMikdash, the, the temples, the first and second temple that stood in that exact place. And God willing, what Jews pray every day will be the also the site of the third and final temple coming in the age of the Moshiach, the Jewish Messiah. That's what we pray for multiple times every day. So really just a beautiful Sabbath there in, in the old city. On Saturday, actually, on Shabbat day itself, when we went down to the hotel for the afternoon prayers, so we went down around 3, 3.30 p.m. or so local time for Mincha, the afternoon prayer, we actually bumped into Mike Pence. So former Vice President Mike Pence, was there. I'm not, not entirely sure exactly what he, he was doing there. He, he certainly is a devout Christian and a sincere Zionist himself. I think he was just basically there on a solidarity trip to meet with Prime Minister Netanyahu and lots of officials. And, you know, we were about to walk back to where we were staying. And then this guy on my trip just goes, guys, guys, wait up. And like, I, I, yeah, it was, it was literally Mike Pence looking awfully sun-kissed, by the way, Mike Pence. Not sure if he's been spending a lot of time in the Caribbean or something like that since he postponed his presidential campaign or if, you know, who, who, who knows what else it could be. But it was looking pretty good. I think it was the first time I've actually met him in person, gave me a, you know, gave me a nice handshake. You know, say what you will about Mike Pence. And to put it mildly, he is not my cup of tea when it comes to his grasp of, of, of the current tenor of American conservatism, this fusing of conservatism and populism, the so-called new right. I think that he is out of step with a lot of that. But certainly on the Israel issue, he, he is a long-standing stalwart on that issue there. And it was really cool to, to run into him there uh, at the Old City. Unfortunately, he didn't take any photos because it was over Shabbat and, and the Sabbath, but really just kind of funny. And then Saturday evening after Shabbat ended, we went over to the deputy mayor of Jerusalem's house, had, had not met this, this woman before, woman by the name of Fleur Hassan Nahom, really, really charismatic personality, an up-and-coming leader there in Likud, that is Prime Minister Netanyahu's party. She really just opened up her home, and we had a really nice conversation, maybe five, six of us 
along with her. We were there for hours. It seemed, it seemed like Flora didn't want us to leave. You know, maybe we'll have to get Flora as a guest on this show at some point in the not so distant future. Really just a huge force of nature, deeply just personal person. Really enjoyed chatting with her and getting to know her again. She's the deputy mayor of the city of Jerusalem, primarily in charge of tourism, foreign relations, things like that. So then this was Sunday. It was our second full day, the first day after the Sabbath. And our, and our group went down to Hebron, to Hebron. Now, there's so much history in Hebron, it's hard to know where to start. And this was not my first time there. It was actually my second time going to Hebron. I was there for the first time Back in, oh gosh, it would have been December 2018, I believe. Now, if you go on Wikipedia, if you start Googling around, you will see that Hebron, again, that's the Hebrew pronunciation, Hebron, it's Hebron in English. You will see that Hebron is actually the largest city in the West Bank or Judea and Samaria based on population. It has a massive, massive Arab population. And the PA, the Palestinian Authority, which is just the successor organization to the PLO, Yasser Arafat's organization founded in the 1960s, the Palestinian Authority, the same organization today, headed by Mahmoud Abbas, that has not only refused to condemn the Hamas Holocaust of October 7th, but has openly bragged about how it participated in it and is paying out pay for slay stipends to the jihadists who murdered Jews during it, just ugly, ugly people. So they basically flooded Hebron intentionally as a way to try to de-Judaize the presence and strip it of any ancient Jewish history. They have been unsuccessful in that. They've been unsuccessful in that endeavor for a few reasons. The primary reason of which is that there are about 800 to 900 or so extraordinarily brave, extraordinarily brave Jews who still to this day live in Hebron. And we really walked along the entire part of the Jewish area of, of Hebron where the Jews can actually still live. It essentially is one street. It, it is literally one street that effectively goes from what in, in English we refer to as the Cave of the Patriarchs. In Hebrew, it would be Me'arat HaMachpelah. That's where the patriarchs and the matriarchs are buried, everyone ex except for Rachel. Rachel. Rachel has her own tomb. We actually went there later on that same day of Sunday. But Abraham, Isaac, Yaakov, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they, they're all buried there. They're all buried there in the Cave of the Patriarchs. Hebron, for, for this reason, is the second holiest city in all, in all of Judaism after, after Jerusalem, the site of the temple. And this time when I went there, it was my first time really seeing more of Jewish Hebron, not just Me'ar Hamachel, not just the Cave of the Patriarchs, but really seeing the, the whole Jewish area. And you know, it's very hard to describe without photos, but I cannot, I cannot possibly describe enough how daunting it is to have this literal one long street going from the cave of the patriarchs to essentially the top of the city of Hebron, the highest geographical point where there you have the tomb of Ruth and Ishai, Ruth and Jesse, father of David, David Hamelech, David the king. They are buried there on the top of the highest geographical point of Hebron. We were actually met there on this trip by Ishai Fleischer. You might recognize that name from social media. Ishai is the international spokesman for the Jewish community of Hebron. All around men's just a fantastic conservative warrior when it comes to counter jihadism, when it comes to trying to encourage Israel to extend sovereignty to more areas in Judea and Samaria. Just an absolute lion for the state of Israel and by extension, an absolute lion for Western civilization for which the state of Israel is simply ultimately the canary in the coal mine. So we were met up there 
at the highest geographical point by Eshai. They're building this new shul up there. They're building a small kolel, a place of study, really just extraordinary stuff there. And then walking down this street from that very high geographical point, and just to give you guys an idea of the history that is there in Hebron, the, the, the history there goes back e- e- even further than Jerusalem. It goes back even further than Jerusalem. There was a street just there outside of the tombs of Ruth and Eshai at the very high topographical, geographical point there at the top of Hebron. This street, and you can kind of, you can literally to this day see the stones, you can see the street carved out there, goes back, we think, about 4,000 years. <laughs> goes back before the time of Abraham. Goes back before the, the first Jew who ever walked the earth there. This is an old, old city. You know, it's, 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 it's right there in the Bible. I mean, open up your Bible to Genesis 23. This is Genesis 23, 2, quote, And Sarah died in Kiryat Arba, which is Hebron in the land of Canaan, and Abraham came to eulogize Sarah and to bewail her. That is why the cave of the patriarchs, Me'ar HaMachpelah, is there in Hebron, because it's, that's what it is. It was the first Jewish land deed, the first real estate transaction ever recorded. It's right there in Genesis 23, 2. By the way, in the actual text, they say, quote, and Sarah died in Kiryat Arba. Well, it turns out to this day, the Jewish settlement that directly abuts Hebron, you could basically, well, you wouldn't want to walk there because it's dangerous, but you basically could geographically walk there. The town right next to Hebron where more Jews live than in Hebron itself is actually called Kiryat Arba. And, you know, we're, we're just touring then the Jewish part of, of, of Hebron. And a very cool moment for me. Uh, the leader on our trip as a belated wedding gift to me gave me a mezuzah. So a mezuzah is the sign, essentially the signpost that Jews affix on the doors of all of their houses. And the observer ones will also have mezuzahs inside the house, everywhere that there's a doorway as well. And it has a parchment with a text from the Bible inscribed inside it. And the rabbi there who was calling the trip let me put up a mezuzah on a new Jewish door, a new doorway, a new apartment, essentially, that they had just uncovered in Jewish Hebron. They're discovering new stuff every day there. That was a really, really cool moment for me. They also let another participant on the trip, Matthew Tiermond, a former guest on this show, they let him hoist an Israeli flag on, on the top of this, of this hilltop right next to a soldier with these Arab people standing 20 feet away, snarling and hissing at us. You, you really can't understand the fight for Western civilization without understanding Hebron and Judea and Samaria. I, I have donated numerous times over the years to an organization there called the Hebron Fund, which exists to help fund the, the soldiers and, and the residents there as far, as far as clothing, shelter, food, things, things are concerned there. If you want to talk about the, the, the fight in the world today between the forces of lightness and darkness of good versus evil of the Judeo-Christian heritage versus radical Islamic jihadist barbarism and its evil twin wokeism, you have to understand that the fight right there is in greater Israel, what Jews call Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. And that includes Judea and Samaria, what the international community refers to as the West Bank. And Hebron itself, because it is the largest by population Arab community in all of the West Bank and because of the Jewish history there, that is really just ground zero. You know, it was maybe one or two Congresses ago where Congress passed, you know, as it often does, one of these resolutions expressing support for the state of Israel, expressing support for the U.S.-Israeli friendship, 
but nonetheless uh, expressing that the, the Congress wished or hoped, expected, that one day there would be a two-state solution, so to speak, to the conflict with the Palestinian Arabs. And, you know, it was, it was Congressman Louis Gohmert of Texas, himself a, a devout Christian, who objected to the resolution on the specific grounds that he would not countenance any final solution to that conflict, to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, under which Hebron, Hebron is not part of Israel. So it, it really, really is, from my perspective, it is ground zero of the conflict. Very, very, very cool to be there. We went straight from there to Kerev Raquel, Rachel's tomb, which is heavily, heavily fortified. If you guys have ever been there, it's, it's right in Bethlehem. It's in Bethlehem. It is just outside Jerusalem, but it's been, Rachel's tomb has been the subject of so many Palestinian Arab terrorist attacks over the years that it has now been really just drastically fortified. So we went there to do our, our afternoon prayers on Sunday, you know, as a, as, as a newly married man and given the story of, of Rachel that we all know from the Bible with her barren womb that only opens up towards the end of her life. You know, I thought, I thought that was the proper time to, to, to pray for, for our family, God willing, our future children, may they be healthy and, and numerous and plentiful and bountiful and all of the above. So then the week starts and, you know, I'll, I'll Fast forward through some of these details, but we start by going to Mount Herzl, which is essentially Israel's Arlington National Cemetery. I've been there before. That's where Theodore Herzl and some of the other uh, high-ranking officials of the state of Israel, the presidents, prime ministers, and so forth are, are, are buried. Before that, we went to the memorial for the fallen soldiers. So Israel has a memorial there next to the cemetery for all those soldiers who have fallen in battle for the Jewish state over the decades. And the architectural setup of this building is basically a spiral. It's like a stone spiral that spirals upwards into the heavens. I'm exaggerating a little bit. It doesn't go that high, obviously, but you get the idea. And they have an individual name and the date of death, what we refer to as the art site, of all of the soldiers and the national policemen, you know, intelligence officers, they, they grouped them all together there. And when they, when they died. And when you first enter this spiraling structure, it's the most recent. And then you, the further you walk up, the further back it goes. So eventually you'll get to the Yom Kippur War of 1973, the Six-Day War of 1967, the Independence War of 1948, and so forth. All that has to say is when you first get into this spiraling architectural you know, almost Tower of Babel-esque figure, if you will, kind of rising into the heavens, you see the most recent names. And that's the first time on the trip that it really hits you, wow, this is a lot of names. On October 7th, 2023, and indeed in the months since October 7th, 2023. So that was tough. That was really tough to just see all of those names there, we had some other soldiers who were leading us on this tour. That was kind of the first really kind of somber moment for the group. Um, you know, the broader group was maybe 50, 60 people, 20 of whom were my fellow conservatives and kind of the sub delegation. And in the, in the broader delegation, many folks knew personally those who had died either, either on October 7th or in the subsequent months after that. This is one thing that is, in my opinion, one of the strongest traits of the Jewish people. It is one of the things that, ha that has sustained us through so many ups and downs, so many tragedies throughout the generations. 
is that in so many ways we really are just just one big family, just just one big people, ultimately one big nation, formed a nation at Har Sinai, at, at Mount Sinai itself, and that's the way it's been ever since the revelation, ever since Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, descended from Sinai with the stone tablets. It's been that way for thousands and thousands of years now. And that ended up being a late motif over the course of this trip. It's a bit of a preview of what I'm going to talk about in the next few minutes, is that sense of camaraderie and family and nationhood just reverberated right there in that in that memorial chamber. It reverberated all throughout the trip there. Really powerful stuff. And then towards the end of our time there at the Memorial Museum, then they actually, so every day there at the, at the Memorial Museum, the, the soldiers do a formal memorial service where they read out the names of all of those who actually died in battle for the state of Israel on that specific day. So, you know, you can't even imagine, of course, what, you know, next October 7th, 2024 is going to be. That's going to be a particularly long and painful ceremony there on the, on the one-year yard site, the one-year anniversary of the Hamas Holocaust there. But, you know, even being there on the day that I was there was just extraordinarily powerful. Um, and and, and you, you, you see people singing as well. The tears are coming out because you're trying to sing songs to memorialize them. Again, that's one thing that, that the Jewish people do very well is they, is they embrace, they hug, they put their arms around each other. That's how, that's how you get through the good times and the bad times. And you know, there was one song with just a lot of hallelujahs. There was an American Jewish composer who wrote back during the Yom Kippur War of 1973. They passed it out on sheets there. Very, very, very powerful stuff. And then later that afternoon, we went to the Knesset. That was Israel's parliament. Had a lot of interesting meetings there at the Knesset with folks like Yuli Edelstein, the longest serving speaker in the history of the Knesset. That's their equivalent of the Speaker of the House. Met briefly with uh, Danny Danone, former Israeli ambassador to the United Nations and a few other people like that. The country is unified, guys. That is really kind of my big takeaway from speaking to political actors there. Lots of folks have their opinions one way or the other as to the specific political future of Prime Minister Netanyahu, and most folks I spoke with did not have a particularly a particularly positive future. Most of them had a fairly dim assessment as to his future political prospects as an individual. But as pertains to all the various political parties, as pertains to all of the Israeli people and the representatives duly elected there in the Knesset and the national legislature, they, they are united. They, there is very, very little daylight as to what has to happen and what needs to be done there in Gaza and increasingly to an extent up north in Hezbollah as, as well. This is actually one thing that the, the Western media has done a really shoddy job, a really shoddy job of depicting and portraying just how bad the situation actually is up north. So we didn't go up north on this trip. We went down south. That's what, that's what I'm going to talk about next there. But the situation up north is is really bad. There's been roughly 100,000 Israelis who have been evacuated from their homes since October 7th, including larger towns, small cities such as Kiryat Shimona in, in far northern Israel. For everyone who lives within two to three kilometers, two to three miles, I don't remember the exact specification, of that border with Lebanon. They are out. They are evacuated there. They are down south, including in one facility that we visited on the Wednesday of our trip outside of Tel Aviv. And there are, there are still attacks. There are still attacks there. So this, this, just, this past Sunday, just a few days ago, actually, 
There was a Lebanon anti-tank missile from Hezbollah in southern Lebanon that Israeli missile defense apparently did not properly intercept, and it hit a house there in a small town in far northern Israel called Kafar Yuval. Mother and son killed. Mother and son just killed while eating breakfast. Casual Sunday morning in, in northern Israel right now. So you have the economy up there that is complete in complete tatters. You have 100,000 people out of their homes. The United Nations, which despite a 2006 resolution that calls for Hezbollah to retreat north of the Latani River after Israel withdrew in 2006 following the, the Lebanon war there, they, the United Nations do, doing nothing. They are doing nothing to enforce their own 2006 resolution. So most of the people that I spoke with there, both in the Knesset and both in just kind of casual conversations with friends, colleagues, and so forth there, all around the country, they actually think that now is the time for, for war with Hezbollah. They don't think they have much of a choice. Again, you can't live like this. You can't live where you have 100,000 at least of your citizens who simply cannot return to their home, where the international community, where the United States, the European Union, UN, Brussels, Turtle Bay, all of the usual Jew-hating suspects in the Jew-hating so-called international community are doing absolutely nothing to enforce their own purported resolutions when it comes to telling Hezbollah to get lost, to get north of the Latani River per the 2006 UN resolution on this topic, thereby allowing for the Israelis, northern Israel, to actually return to their homes for the economy to get back up and running and for people, most importantly, to actually feel safe and secure and not worry or have to worry about running to a bomb shelter or, God forbid, something even worse than that, every X seconds. So that is something that I was a little surprised by. The basic calculation is that on top of the fact that the whole country is mobilized right now, the whole country is totally in sync. All the folks have been called out of army reserves there. Hundreds of thousands of folks are are mobilized. They're ready to fight. That was another anecdotal thing I noticed that, you know, throughout my whole trip, just walking around there, you you normally do see a lot of guns in, in general, in Israel, because you, there's conscription, there's mandatory military service. You see, you see a lot of soldiers, and you see a lot of veterans of the IDF who are carrying on weapons. But because so many people have been called out of reserves on this trip, you see guns everywhere, and not just handguns, but you know rifles as well. Which, as a gun guy myself, I I, I love that. I mean, I feel a heck of a lot safer, frankly, for, for that reason as well. But all that's to say that that is one of the reasons I think why most of the Israelis I spoke with actually think that now is the time for, for war with Hezbollah because the reserves have all been, all been called up. They've all gone through training now. If not now, when are you going to do it? You know, this war with Hezbollah has probably been, been necessary for at least 10 years, 10 to 15 years or so now. People were writing about the next Israeli-Hezbollah war. I mean, I can think back vividly to articles I read 10 years ago, 2014, 2015, around them talking about there. You know, we'll see, we'll, we'll see what happens. I think the reason it has not happened yet is because the Biden administration in an election year when it's hemorrhaging so many Arab votes in crucial swing states like Michigan and Minnesota, they are putting tremendous, tremendous pressure on the Israeli government to refrain from any kind of quote unquote escalatory actions in Lebanon or Syria that might risk a fuller, a fuller scale war with Hezbollah. Of course, you also have the lingering possibility of Biden with his flirtations with the Iranian regime. That'll be the sugar daddy of Hezbollah. So that is a factor in all this dance as well there. But uh, I was a little surprised by kind of the 
near unanimity of those I spoke with who think that now really is the time to get that war done with Hezbollah. And I, I get it. I mean, again, 100,000 people out of your home, really, really nothing to sneeze at there. Okay, so that takes us to Tuesday, which was the hardest day by far of this trip that I went on there. So we went down south. We went down to the Gaza envelope. We started in the small city of Ofakim, which is maybe seven to 10 miles or so from Gaza, maybe a little more than that, 10 to 12 miles. But Hamas was there. Hamas slayed many in Ofakim on October 7th, 2023. And we got a powerful, powerful tour from a man named Idamar, who is one of the police captains of the town of Ofakim. He basically walked us all around this square, showing us the bullet holes, literally saying, here's where I was standing when this guy threw a grenade at me. Here's where I was standing when they were shooting at my colleague or my friend. He told us where his rabbi was shot, where he saved his rabbi's life. Here's where I was standing, where I was taking cover in this position and shooting back at this angle and this it, it, crazy stuff, crazy stuff, seeing the, the, the bullet holes uh, and, and all of that there. And towards the end of our time there in Ofakim, where we were about done with our time with Edomar, just a, a true, true, true hero. What, what, what an incredible man, the kind of man that the Jewish people are just so truly blessed to have. We were standing outside the house of Rachel, of Rachel of Ofakim. Those of you who follow this stuff closely, you might know that Rachel was famous because she had numerous Hamas terrorists in her house for, for hours, for like nine or 10 hours, something crazy like that. And she managed to survive because she, she wasn't scared. She refused to let them see that she was scared. And instead, she offered them water and cookies and, oh, what can I do to make you more comfortable? And it worked. It literally worked. The IDF ended up getting into her house and killing the savages and, and saving her. So she, she has become quite the international hero. Uh, funny enough, she actually ended up being on my flight back to Florida from Israel. I didn't even realize that until I was boarding off the plane there. Apparently, she was up there sitting in first class. Good for her. So we were literally standing there outside of her house. You see all the bullet holes there. And, you know, we all we all broke out into song together and, and, and we're singing. We're fighting back the tears there. You, you, you see uh, on this mural kind of across the street from Rachel's house, the, the sign saying F terrorism, F Hamas. Um, you know, things that people have written there in, in English. Um, you see the makeshift memorials uh, of these of these brothers. Uh, there's two pairs of brothers, young men, men in their 20s, 30s, who were slain there on October 7, 2023. Really gripping stuff. Then we went to Sterot. Sterot is a border town essentially right on Gaza that has been in the news a lot as being maybe the single largest recipient of rockets that had been blasted into Israel from Hamas since Hamas took over the Gaza Strip after its bloody coup over the Palestinian Authority back in 2007. And you, again, you see the bullet holes. We were right by the police station. The police station was the site of a, of a brutal, a ferocious battle on October 7, 2023. Something like 20 Israeli police officers and, and soldiers died there in that battle against Hamas on October 7, 2023. Brutal, brutal stuff in many ways. In many ways, Sterot feels like a ghost town. Most of these towns right down there near Gaza, much like the towns up north, 
have largely been evacuated. The silver lining of my time there in Starot was that my brother-in-law, and those of you who follow this this show closely know that I've spoken a lot about my, my brother-in-law since October 7th. He lives in a town called Netivot, which is between Sterot and Ofakim. So it's between where we first went on that trip on Tuesday and our second time. He, he met me there in Stero. It was really good to see him and his daughter for uh, 45 minutes or so. He actually dropped off a gift for one of my other friends on the trip there. You know, it's, it's really interesting, actually. If you, if you, if you look on a map, Netivot, which is where he lives, it's really the one city in this whole circular area that was actually not hit by Hamas on October 7th. Starot was the site of this ferocious battle. Then the border kibbutzes, the border kibbutzim, kibbutz Beri, Raim, Kfar Aza, totally slaughtered. And then Ofakim, which is to the east of Netivot, so it's further into Israel, was hit as well. That was with Edomar, the police captain hero. We were, we were just talking about that. So if you ask the folks in Netivot what saved them on October 7th, most of the folks there would probably say that it was the Babasali. The Babasali was a, is a legendary, very well-known Moroccan rabbi who lived some of the later years of his life in Netivot, and he is buried in Netivot. So if you want to ask the residents there, what saved them while the Hamas terrorists who went up to the literal gate of Netivot on October 7th, while they couldn't actually get in, or while they chose to skip it, most residents there will actually say that it was the Baba Sali himself who actually saved the residents there, who spared them on October 7th. Your mileage, of course, may vary, but that really is what the primarily more religious folks there living there really do believe. So this is when it gets really hard. So from Sterot, we went down to Kafar Aza and Tareem. Kafar Aza, I, I, I don't even know like what to say. Um, I, I have never seen anything like that in my entire life. I really have not. Israel has left Kafar Aza largely largely untouched. They've cleaned out the bodies, obviously. They have cleaned up some of the blood on the walls of the houses, but you walk in there, you can clearly see where the blood was. I mean, to say it looks like a bomb went off in this kibbutz would, would, would be an understatement. So Kafar Aza is a small kibbutz. It is literally right on the fence. So it is right on the fence, and then, then there's basically like a mile or so of of agriculture or fields, what essentially is a demilitarized zone. And then the fence is on the other side then with Gaza. I mean, you can clearly, clearly see into Gaza right there. It's basically a mile away. You're sitting on the, literally on the fence there. These homes are just destroyed. Uh, the, the front doors are bombed out. There's random mattresses in the, in the middle of the streets. You can see the wreckage and the carnage inside. There's all sorts of household goods and household items that are strewn everywhere. There's rubble everywhere. There's parts of the doors that are falling off. There's just random parts of automobiles that are laying th throughout. I, I have never, never in my life encountered anything like this. And what Israel has done, you, can, you can't really get here if you're a civilian. You, you, the army chooses on a given day who to let in to Kafaraza, into Kibbutzberry, some of these some of these other kibbutzim border towns there on Gaza that were slaughtered. And what the military has done for those who are able to get in there to see it is they have these signs outside the homes saying this person was brutally murdered by Hamas in this home. This person was taken hostage by Hamas in this home. 
And these are primarily young people. These are primarily very young people who had an awful lot to live for. These are young people in, in, in their 20s, 30s. And it's just unbearably sad. It's really unbearably sad. Tragically, and somewhat ironically, this was a, a notoriously left-leaning kibbutz. The folks here were basically hippies. They were there because they, they wanted peace right now with the Palestinian Arab. Shalom Akshav, peace now, was something of a recurring cry from those in this community. And uh, just tragically, just absolutely tragically, many of them en en ended up dying, perhaps because of that, on October 7th because their activism brought them to live right there on the border, and therefore Hamas was able to breach it more easily. But even right there in Kafar Aza, one of the most beautiful memories of this trip I had was just getting into this circle with some more religious people, religious Jews who took out some guitars, and we just started singing and dancing and fighting about the tears, and there were all these soldiers there in Kafar Aza, Israeli soldiers. The soldiers want to go there just to be reminded of what it is they're fighting for of what it is that they are risking their lives day in and day out in Gaza for. So we all just start singing the religious Jews and the soldiers and the guitar and all various songs in, in Hebrew. Just, um, I, I, I know I was crying. I was fighting back tears when I was not crying. Just one of those things that you will just never forget is, again, the Jewish people's love for life. I'm Israel Chai, the Jewish people live, just there singing fighting back the tears and vowing that we will get our vengeance, that we are going to continue to exist, that we will proudly exist, that this is our land, that we believe in our God. He is a just and merciful God and so forth there. Um, really powerful stuff there in Kafaraz. And then after that, we went down to Raim, the site of the Nova Music Festival. You know, the carnage, not as visceral as Kafaraz, because there's no homes that are literally obliterated. There were no homes you can walk into like we did in Kafaraz to see the blood on the wall, this, the, that. But you walk around this field at Raim where the Nova Music Festival was, and they, they have stakes in the ground for everyone who was murdered or taken hostage. And for, on the stakes, they have photos of the folks who were murdered or taken hostage, and there's usually notes and flowers and candles and whatever other items that those who are there, the loved ones, friends, and so forth, have left for those who were killed or taken hostage. And the one thought that I had over and over again, walking around that blood-stained, horrible field in Raim, Israel, where the Nova Music Festival was, was how young and oftentimes just beautiful the human beings were, the men, the women, the boys, the girls who were slaughtered there wantonly wantonly by today's by today's nazis the islamist reich the jihadists of hamas who indiscriminately the paratroopers that same paratrooper image that the disgusting misanthropes of blm black lives matter chicago initially laundered as their image to quote unquote free palestine in the hours after the slaughter you jerks i was there I was there. I saw their faces. These beautiful, innocent, young human beings who had everything to live for. Slaughtered. And to this day, you idiots oftentimes justify their slaughter in the name of 
decolonization or resistance, anti-apartheid, anti-oppression. You people are so full of you know what. I can't even take it after seeing what I saw there in Kafar Aza and Rayim. Disgusting. Yet again, we did the circles and the singing and dancing. Again, that was the most powerful part of this whole trip for me was seeing that camaraderie. And then from there, we went to a place called Gilot Junction where there was an impromptu IDF rest and relaxation facility put out this big tent where there's all these volunteers cooking food, delicious food, I might add, giving out coffee for the soldiers not terribly far from Gaza, closer to Ofakim, our first stop on that day there. Basically just a place to go in and to do just that, to rest and relax, to fill up, to refuel, to rehydrate. There's a there's fun music playing and there's like dance music. There's a little bit of a library in case you want to get a little reading in. There's actually, there's actually some massage tables. So all the soldiers getting massaged by masseuses carrying guns. Not every day you see masseuses carrying guns, but such is the nature of the beast over there. And that itself was really, really encouraging as well. Just to see everyone's spirits so high. There is no doubt in the minds of all of the people there in the army and outside the army what they are fighting for. They oftentimes will go to Raim, Kafar Aza, towns like that, just to be viscerally reminded of it. To have that injection, so to speak, injected into them. Those raw emotions. But there is no one who is questioning the nobility, the righteousness, the justness of the military mission of obliterating Hamas and sending them straight to hell. These absolute savages. Indeed, the soldiers there that I saw, they are so proud, they view it as a privilege, a privilege and an honor to defend the Jewish state and to defend the Jewish people against these barbaric, savage enemies of all that is good, true, and beautiful in this world. And it was that spirit which I experienced in the slaughter fields of Raim and Kafar Aza, which I saw right there at the IDF Rest and Relaxation Facility Base in Gilat Junction. That was one of the biggest lessons that I took away from this trip, no doubt about that. The next day, we went to a hospital outside Jerusalem to hear from a mental health specialist, kind of, the, kind of the nature of the trauma that she has been dealing with there for soldiers who were in Gaza and that she has been treating. We heard from one soldier himself who was recovering. After that, we went to Kafar Maccabiah, which is actually normally where they host the athletes for the Maccabi Games, the Jewish Olympics. It's in Ramakan outside of Tel Aviv, but they've essentially repurposed it as a facility for displaced persons, primarily from the north in Hezbollah, targeted northern Israel, but also in southern Israel as well. Lots of people recovering there. It's actually where a lot of the hostages themselves are actually recovering still in Kafar Maccabee. I recall that a lot of these hostages who are released from Gaza come back and they have no family. Their family has been slaughtered. So a lot of them are choosing to recover there at Kafar Maccabee because they really have nowhere else to go. So that was just a really sobering thing to see and to intuit and to understand and we were you know when we were at the Knesset the parliament a couple of days earlier we saw the families of the hostages you know holding up the signs you know return our boys return our girls as well then later in that day in Tel Aviv I was able to interview Douglas Murray uh the the, the British commentator of the Spectator New York Post of War I was able to interview him for our group really grateful that Douglas took the time to to, to do that with us and then we went to Hostage Square itself 
where we saw more families of the hostages. And you see this massive, massive table of 238 to 240 chairs or so. It's a massive Shabbat dinner table that Israel has left untouched since the beginning of the war. One seat for every hostage there. The plates, the glasses, the cutlery, the silverware, it is all impeccable. I spoke with a couple of the locals there. They say that when it snows, when there's a windstorm, people rush out of their apartments near Hostage Square in Tel Aviv to take pristine care, to take perfect care of the Shabbat dinner setups there for the hostages. That is how seriously the country is unified in support of getting his hostages back right now. And then there was a band on stage that was playing songs and singing for the hostages. Just very, very, very powerful stuff. Did a TV interview there for, for, for Newsmax television station right there in Hostage Square as well. And then on the final day, on that Thursday, we went back to the Kotel, the Western Wall. A couple of the folks on our trip actually had their long overdue bar mitzvah, actually, that morning, the final Thursday of our trip, including the aforementioned Matthew Tiermond. Then we got a really nice tour of the city of David, Irdovi, which is essentially a remarkable archaeological excavation that is uncovering just the ruins of ancient Jerusalem from two to 3,000 years ago. Really incredible stuff, just proving the historical authenticity of these great stories of the Bible there in, in real time. Just incredible. I mean, holding literal pottery from the era of the destruction of the Second Temple in the year 70, we, we held literal pottery and Roman coinage in our hands from, from 2,000 years ago. Incredible stuff that they're doing there at the City of David. And, the, and then my trip ended that same evening by being a moderator at a conference, a conference dedicated to Israeli sovereignty, opposition to the so-called two-state solution, opposition to creating a new Palestinian Arab terrorist state in Judea and Samaria in the West Bank, had Ishai Fleischer, who I mentioned earlier in the show from Hebron, he was on my panel, did a great job, had Ohad Tal, a young and up-and-coming Knesset member from the parliament, a, a strong conservative on my panel there. Really enjoy, I think I think I was, I was one of the only Americans, I might have been the only American actually, to speak at this entire conference, which was televised on, on Israeli on Israeli TV stations and was much written about in right-wing media over there. So really delighted to have the opportunity to partake in that conference. My gratitude to Nadia Matar for being the organizer and the one who ultimately got me the invitation and helped usher me in there. So that was basically the trip. And again, my two big takeaways, which I alluded to over the course of this episode. One, the Israeli people, again, are so united when it comes to this war effort right now especially when you compare it to how divided they were earlier this year or earlier last year, I guess now, when it came to the judicial reform controversy that was really tearing the country apart, that you had left-wingers protesting in the streets for shutting down the highways and you had conservative counter-protesters, things like that. The country is beyond united now. Query how long it will last. I would not expect it to last a very, very long time, but I guess we will see. For now, for now, Everyone is unified when it comes to this fight against Hamas and increasingly this fight against Hezbollah up north. And that is my second takeaway from this trip, is that this, this war is not ending anytime soon. They are talking in Israel as if this is going to last really most of, if not the entirety of the 2024 calendar year. I mean, that's not, obviously you can't give a precise date, who the heck knows, 
But they're, they're essentially putting the public on notice that this thing could last for the better part of this year, quite possibly through the November elections in the United States. That is a long time. This already has been the longest war Israel has fought, and it's not slowing down anytime soon. On the contrary, as I noted earlier, the Israeli public seems in many ways chomping at the bit to get war with Hezbollah up north. That's not because anyone wants another war, God forbid. Hezbollah has a much more dangerous arsenal than Hamas does. It is for the very simple reason that they think that it is necessary that now is the time with the whole country mobilized and things like that. And because they are absolutely convinced that they would convincingly win. It was a really powerful trip filled with all sorts of high highs and low lows. Lots of crying, lots of singing, lots of joy. From the lows of being down in Kafar Aza and Raim, so the to the highs of planting a mezuzah on the door there in Hebron, of the hoisting of a new Israeli flag there in Hebron, and my friend's bar mitzvah, the kotel, and the singing, and the simcha, the happiness, the joy of that. The conference I spoke at had a lot of fun there. I managed to get dinner with a lot of a lot of friends there in, in Jerusalem as well, including uh, Yoram Hazoni, a former guest on this show from a couple of years ago. It was a really powerful trip, and I'm grateful to WZO, World Zionist Organization, and YJC, Young Jewish Conservatives, for their sponsorship and for leading this trip. But let me tell you, and I'll, I will end on this note. Having been there after October 7th and having seen what I saw, from the bullet holes of Ofakim to the shattered police station of Sterot to the carnage, the unspeakable wreckage, the barbarism on display there in Kafar Aza to the hundreds and hundreds of stakes in the ground and the beautiful young lives taken from us there at the Nova Music Festival in Raim. If you still think that there is any nuance or any gray in this conflict, get lost. Not every conflict in the world is one between unmitigated good and unmitigated evil. This one is. Just on Monday, earlier this week, a 79-year-old woman was murdered by a Palestinian Arab terrorist attack in Ranana, a wealthy, prominent, and heavily American community outside of Tel Aviv. The terrorist was actually from Hebron. These terrorists are going to keep on acting up, not just in Israel, but all around the world, unless and until Israel deals a decisive blow to the subjugationist, hegemonic, jihadist enemy. That blow must come in Gaza. It must come in Lebanon via Hezbollah. And increasingly, it seems, it must come in Yemen via the Houthis as well. Not every conflict is between black versus white and good versus evil. Some of them really are. And no matter what the Biden administration says or does, in the weeks and months to come, especially as it pertains to Hezbollah up north, Israel cannot go shaky. I saw it with my own eyes. They must, simply must, see this mission through. I'm Israel Chai.
the people of Israel live.